Happy Thanksgiving. Glad to be able to to uh, to wish that for you, and um, and I'm thankful for this opportunity. Thankful to be speaking to you today. Um, and as this is a week of family gatherings, uh, and because Jim did tell me to speak about something near and dear to my heart, I want to talk to you about my kids. Um, specifically, I want to talk about why our goal is to make disciples of our children. It's uh, Discipleship is a subject that's been near and dear to my heart for a long time. It is the clarion call of my personal ministry. It's what I spend all of my time doing, trying to reintroduce discipleship into the modern church. And like so many things, it begins at home. Now, part of the reason that uh, that I settled on this topic, honestly, is because Jim has been telling me for months now that my family is admired here. And in that vein, I need to tell you before we go any further that my family is a mess. (laughs) I don't say that out of a false sense of humility. I really mean that. I studied, actually, as a marriage and family therapist, and I really sometimes long for those days when I knew everything and had all the answers. Because the longer I live with that, the more I realize that my education is just informing me about how broken we all are. Families are messy. I want to talk to you about some biblical principles, and I want to talk to you about some things that have worked for us. But I think it's important that you understand that if I stand up here speaking about something that has worked, you can count on the fact that there were a dozen things that didn't. Because there's no absolute playbook for everything that comes up. It's been pointed out to me that all four of my children are dramatically different from each other, and that's true. And I love that about them, but it also means that for every child we had, we had to come up with a new strategy. (laughs) So bear that in mind. I don't believe in family professionals. I don't believe there are experts, and when people try to, to convince you that they are, they're selling you something. What I want for my kids, what I want for your kids, all the children in this community, is for them to become disciples of Jesus Christ. And I choose that word very specifically. I don't mean that I want them to become Christians. That's not even a name we chose for ourselves. Somebody else gave that to us. I want them to become disciples. It's a very specific idea. A disciple, discipleship is about the transfer of the gospel from one person to another. It is self-replicating. Every disciple carries with them the DNA of the gospel. One of my favorite authors calls it the sneezable gospel. If you can set aside the virus image for a moment. The idea is that the gospel is contained in us something like a virus. And it should transfer from us 
to the people that we encounter. And when we look at the early church, that is exactly what happened. Disciples made disciples who made disciples who made disciples. So when I talk about making disciples of our children, I'm not talking about converting one generation into churchgoers or Christians. I'm talking about helping to make people, make followers of Jesus who make other followers of Jesus. And that's why this is so important. The New Testament church all came down to discipleship. It was their goal. It was their strategy. It's the core relationship in a movement that literally turned the world upside down. Not to mention it is the heart of our commission, the commission that we have collectively and individually from Matthew 28 and 19, where Jesus says to us, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. It's worth noting that Jesus never asked us to start churches. He never did. He never asked us to start programs or ministries. He asked us to make disciples. Because when you make disciples, church happens. Discipleship is this really complex notion. I've spent a lot of my life trying to understand it, and I could stand up here for hours talking to you about it, but I've promised I'm not going to do that. The core of it, though, the core of this idea is very simple. And that is, I believe, one of the marks of the divinity in biblical theology that a lot of the profoundly complex ideas that we find in Scripture often possess a simple and singular root that allows us, as simple and singular people, to grasp it. And the simple core of discipleship is the confession that Jesus is Lord. It's that simple. And it shows up over and over and over again in Scripture. In, in Romans 10.9, uh, it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. In 1 Corinthians 12.3, therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2.10 and 11 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. This simple three-word phrase has so much power, and yet why is this power and import attached to it? Well, for that, we need to go even further back. We need to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So why why do I take you there? Well, because this is the central confession of Judaism. The Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. So the Jews all know that the Shema is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It speaks to the monotheism of the faith. It is central to their prayer life. It is the last thing they say before going to sleep at night. It is a part of their confessions. A lot of Jews, even today make a conscious effort to make the Shema their last words. It's that important. 
the first followers of Jesus were devoted to this idea of the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. They grew up with it. They knew all about it. And so what we have in the New Testament is a combination of the central tenet of Judaism and the central tenet of this new emerging movement that will become Christianity. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and Jesus is Lord. Well, then we go on to verse 5 in Deuteronomy 6. It says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus said this was the most important commandment. All the other commandments flow from this one. The basic idea here is it wants 100% of your heart and 100% of your soul and 100% of your strength are devoted to God, then you're free to worship other gods with whatever is left. (laughs) So let's see if we can follow this. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is the Lord. So the only reasonable biblical response to Jesus being Lord, is that we would love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. Jesus is Lord is such a powerful confession because it's essentially the confession that as a disciple, I am attempting to bring everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That I equate Him with God. And that everything that God deserves from me, Jesus deserves from me. This is the core of our identity in Christ. It is the bedrock of the church. It is the sneezable gospel. But I said I wanted to talk to you about children. And you might be wondering what this all has to do with children. So we continue in Deuteronomy 6. Starting with verse 6. These are the commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. See, it turns out that the global mission that we've been given to make disciples started when the people of God made disciples of their own children. And the methodology hasn't really changed. So we want to know how to make disciples in the world. Start by learning how to make disciples in your home. It's really quite similar. If Jesus' Lord is passable from one person to another, then it is passable from one generation to another. Now the last thing I want to do in response to this is give you a to-do list. Because that just becomes a burden. That's like those New Year's resolutions that we know we're not going to follow through on. Neither do I want to give you seven easy steps to family utopia because that's a scam. (laughs) But there are some very valuable principles at work here that I, I want you to take away. And the first of those principles is this. Give yourself permission to be different. One of the things that the law of Moses did for the Jews is it set them apart as a people. It made them very clearly different 
from all of the cultures around them. There is a distinct advantage to that because the cultures around them are not following God. If we live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, then our lives are organized around a completely different premise than most of the people that we encounter. The early believers, you'll remember, were hated and admired, often by the same people. They were hated because Jesus said they would be. He said, the world has hated me, so it will hate you. If you follow me, if you act like me, if you talk like me, the world's going to hate you the same way it hated me. But the world also admired the early believers because of their conviction. Because of what they stood for. Because of the sacrifices they were willing to make. Because of the integrity that they demonstrated. But in order to do that, they had to be radically different. Now, I was labeled early as a teenager as a dreamer and have been labeled uh, a number of times as an adult, as an idealist. And I still struggle with why there's a negative connotation to these things. Because the gospel is a form of idealism. Obeying the gospel is me saying I want to be like Jesus, which is a goal I know I'm not going to obtain. What's more idealistic than pursuing something I know I can't do? Heaven had to invent the whole concept of grace so that we could be idealists about following Jesus. But here's the thing. Children respond to idealism. They come into the world this way. They don't naturally gravitate towards compromise. We teach them that. They love idealism. And i got to tell you that idealism has hurt our family. Professionally, financially, and, and in a lot of other ways. But idealism has helped us hold on to the hearts and souls of our children. The idealism of the gospel gives us a legitimate countercultural framework, which is a fancy way of saying it gives us permission to be weird. And children are under, we know, children are under this enormous pressure to fit in, right? We talk about peer pressure all the time. I'm increasingly convinced that adults are under as much or more pressure to fit in. I spent a couple of years here in this community as, um, on one of the community advisory boards for a local elementary school. It was agonizing. Uh, I would go to these meetings once a month, and I would listen to the other parents in the room talk about all the things that they were doing with their kids, taking them to soccer and the music lessons and making sure that they're getting uh, excellent grades and making sure that they, you know, that they become prodigies in a number of subjects and that they're Olympic hopefuls. And, and, uh, and we would sit there arguing about the spelling curriculum and I'd go, really? The second grade spelling curriculum is what's going to keep them out of Yale? And I would leave those meetings every single month feeling like a bad parent. 
feeling like I wasn't doing enough. Like these other parents, maybe, maybe they loved their kids more than I loved mine because I wasn't jumping through all of these hurdles with them. And I had to come to terms with something. And the thing that I had to come to terms with was this. The most important thing, the most important thing that my kids need to emerge from their childhood with is a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, if I fail at that and we're successful in every other area of life, we've still lost what's most important. Our being weird like this, our being willing to accept a different standard than what the world says we ought to have, allows our children to be weird. And we want our children to be weird. We want them to not fit in. We want it to be obvious as they walk through this life. We want it to be obvious to the people around them that they are living by a different standard. And they may hate them for living by that standard, but they will admire them for their conviction. Second principle is recognize the immense potential of your influence. I want to tell you this, as a, as a pastor and as a counselor, as a sociologist, as a, as a father, whatever else will convince you, I'll send you photocopies of my diplomas. Get this, parents, you are still the biggest influence in your kid's life. Yes, I know youth culture is powerful. Yes, the media is powerful. But research study after research study demonstrates mom and dad are still the most important influence in their own children's lives. And really, the only time that kids completely give themselves over to their peers or to the culture or to the media is when they don't believe any longer that there are any adults in their lives that care about them. Other adults, too. You know, I was raised in the church. I was raised in a Christian home. I'm thankful for that. It was a great foundation for my faith. But I can trace my faith back to a handful of individuals who took an interest in my soul. You see how powerful discipleship is? Seniors, this includes you. One of the most uh, profound influences in my son's life is a man in his 70s that taught him to fly fish. We say this is an intergenerational church. One of the things I just, I, I want you to walk away with this morning is the understanding That if you love a child, that child will allow you to help write their story. Third thing is keep God's word in front of them. That's what this passage is all about. Passage says, write it on the doorpost, tie it to your forehead. 
And you probably know that there are Jews who take this very literally. And they tie boxes onto their shoulders and onto their forehead. And, they, and th- it's this passage that's in that box. We don't live under the law, and even if we did, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's exactly what Jesus would ask of us. But there's an important principle at work here. The lesson of Shema is that core truths serve as handles by which we're capable of grasping things that are otherwise beyond our understanding. So you take those core principles, you take those important verses, those passages that mean so much to you, and, and you read them. You write them on the wall, tape them on the mirror, put them up on the refrigerator, recite them, teach them to your children, include your kids in your Bible study, because it's not just about exposing them to the Word, it's about exposing them to us being exposed to the Word. They need to see how much it matters to us. Protect their innocence. One of the most pervasive lies in our culture is that protecting our kids from immorality somehow leaves them less prepared for their adult life. The truth is, the truth is, nobody has to indoctrinate us in sin and depravity. Evil comes looking for us. If there's a lesson, if there's a lesson in the fall of man, if the lesson in the, in the Eden story, it's that evil, evil is actively pursuing us. Adam and Eve don't leave the garden looking for the serpent. The serpent comes to them and starts spouting lies right from the beginning. And yet, I've been accused sometimes by even my Christian brothers and sisters of being overprotective of my children. Well, I have to tell you, I started my career as a caseworker and a group home counselor, and I have seen and heard some stories that, frankly, I don't share with other people because the burden is too great. I wouldn't want you to carry it. And I, it didn't take too long of being in that world for me to decide my kids were going to have as much of a childhood as I could give them. Innocence is precious. And yes, it is very difficult to protect. Tell me, I'm raising three girls in a culture that thinks they should dress like Victoria's Secret models. Innocence is hard to protect, but it's worth it. We're constantly being bombarded with images in the culture, with choices, poor moral choices. They are presented to us as normal and even healthy. Here's the thing. I don't know how long Adam and Eve had in the garden before that first sin, before they became aware of good and evil. You know, when you read through the story, it sounds like maybe it was like five minutes, you know, before... (laughs) Managed to not sin for the first five minutes of humanity. But I like to think that it was long enough that they could long for their innocence after it was gone. 
That's what we want for our children. We want them to know what innocence is like. Because let's face it, isn't this what Christ is offering us? Hasn't Christ offered to wash us and make us white as snow? Isn't there some value in in having some sense of what that was like before we got caught up in the rest of the world? But the darkness is coming, so... The next principle is equally important. Teach them the truth in the face of deception. Evil and darkness come. They will seek us out. We need to understand that we are pawns in this game. That the real battle is between the forces of evil and the goodness of God. And we can recognize evil at work Because it will eventually tell us the opposite of whatever God told us. Well, it might begin with some minor little crack. Some minor deception. But ultimately, evil will always take us to a place that is the opposite of what God had to say. What is wrong will be right. What is right will be wrong. What is whole will be told is broken. And what is broken will be told is whole. Evil is not content to skew the story. It has to reverse it. Because the battle is against the goodness of God. And it's coming at us from all sides. We get it from the culture. We get it from the press. We get it from the media. They are all lying to us. All of them. Even Fox News. They're all lying to us. We need to understand that every single secular human institution has an agenda that does not happen to be God's agenda. And yes, we can choose those institutions to associate ourselves with that maybe are closer to our moral system, but none of them, none of them have God's agenda. And that is the, that is the caution that we have to have as we walk through this life in this world. The word is truth. And truth is the only antidote for this deception. There's so many examples of this that we might get into, but let me get into the, the most basic, the core one. The Word says that we have been created by a righteous and loving God to exist in relationship with Him, and that God has risked it all to remove any and all barriers to that relationship, even the ones that we ourselves participated in creating. Now that's a pretty great story. The world says there is no such thing as righteousness. There is only expediency because there is no God. And we exist because matter spontaneously formed. Some proteins in some swamp goo got together. Life spontaneously emerged from non-life. Order spontaneously emerged from chaos. One species spontaneously became another until we arrive on the scene with no particular purpose or meaning or value and yet carrying within us a profound and innate need to find purpose and meaning and value in our lives. Now, I know I'm supposed to be embarrassed by my archaic, unscientific religious views. I'm sorry, I'm not. We're weird that way. 
It wouldn't be the first time that the truth was simply unpopular. I remember we homeschool our kids. I remember the first time I explained to them evolutionary theory as opposed to what they grew up learning. Laid it out for them. My son said, well, that's stupid. There you go. Sometimes all we really have to do is lay out the lie that the world is trying to tell us. Invite your children to serve God alongside you. For years, I've watched churches send teenagers on mission trips. And then I've watched churches send adults on mission trips. When Lisa and I got into a position where we were going to be able to make some decisions about what kind of mission trip we would have in our fellowship, we sent families on mission trips. And consequently, my children have grown up serving the Navajo people outside of Bluff, Utah. It has been a major transformational experience in their upbringing. If you ever get the chance to do that with your kids, do it. Or it doesn't have to be your kids. Take somebody else's kids. But you don't have to leave the state. You don't have to leave the country. Find a way to serve God and invite your kids to go along with you. I have to tell you that my wife excels at this. This is the way she grew up. She and her grandmother. Her grandmother is one of those church ladies that is just always taking care of everybody that needs taking care of. One of the most selfless people I've ever met. And she took her granddaughter with her everywhere she went. So the heritage of Christian service that exists in my family is largely because of that. Plus which, it's a very Jesus thing to do. Have you noticed that? Jesus, when he calls his disciples together, unlike most rabbis of his day, he doesn't set up a school somewhere and then just teach them. They walk around. They go places. They do things. They serve people. They heal. From the very beginning of his ministry with his own disciples, Jesus employs them in service. Talk as you go. This might be one of the most important principles in this passage. You know, because uh, we have a lot of guilt as parents. Guilt about all the things that we think we should be doing. What this passage in Deuteronomy says to us, though, is that you, you don't need a program. You don't need a special event. You don't need a ministry or an occasion. Those things can be helpful. We can have those. There's not nothing wrong with that. But we don't need them in order to communicate the most important things about God's Word. When are we going to have these conversations? Well, when we're getting up, when we're lying down, when we're at home, when we're walking on the road. In fact, it's those as-you-go conversations with your kids 
that account for some of the most powerful moments in discipleship. As a matter of fact, some scholars, when they look at the Great Commission, some scholars have suggested that 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 phrase, go into all the world, really could be read as you go into all the world. In other words, it doesn't have to be a special production. But as you go, share the good news. As you go, keep the word on your lips. And finally, I want to say that we need to bless them with empowerment and identity. See, ultimately, I I cannot make my children be disciples. That is their decision, like every other disciple. But we make disciples of children the same way that we make disciples of anyone else in the world. We speak the truth of God into the dark places. The Jews have a Sabbath blessing for their children. Every Friday, you lay, lay your hands on your children's head and, and you bless the boys. You say, the Lord make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. You bless the girls. You say, the Lord make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Why are these people so important? Well, they represent people that represent many, many generations of God's people. So in essence, what we're saying is, may the Lord use you to cultivate future generations who will follow God, who will be disciples of Jesus. What a great blessing. I want to encourage you to do something that I will admit to you I have done sporadically and not consistently enough. But several years ago, I heard a speaker talking about this, and I thought it was such a fantastic idea. Write letters to your children. I write letters to my kids. I have a little wax seal they seal the envelope with so they know it's important. Write letters to your kids and tell them things like how they came into the world and what was so important about that. Tell them about what you believe God might be leading them to do. Tell them about who they are. You see, our children are going to wrestle with the same existential questions that all of us wrestle with. They want to know, who am I and why am I here? And this is where the truth becomes so sweet The truth about a loving God. The truth about the good news. Good news is not enough. It's great news. Who we are is the children of God. And why we are here is to be a part of the beautiful story that He has been writing since the dawn of time. I want my children to emerge into adulthood knowing that about who they are. I want your children to know that about who they are. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up our children. We lift up your children because that's what they really are. And we have this blessed opportunity to teach them, to mentor them, to guide them, to love them in your stead. Father, everything that they learn from us gives them their impression of who you are. And so, Father, I pray that we would give them terrific models to work from, a terrific foundation, God. I pray that we would love them expansively, that we would be devoted more than anything else to their adherence to your word and to the discipleship of your son. And Father, I lift these prayers in his name. Amen.